This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, moving on to May is proving to be even more challenging as the emotional dilemma between personal and economic well-being intensifies. With restrictions on Americans and businesses across the country easing by the day, the Trump administration says there are positive signs in the battle against the coronavirus. The testing and the masks and all of the things, we've solved every problem, we've solved it quickly. We're on the other side of the medical aspect of this, and I think that we've uh, achieved all the different milestones that are needed. And there are some bright spots with treating the virus. The FDA gave emergency authorization for the drug remdesivir to be used intravenously for hospitalized patients after trials showed a quicker recovery. And the administration launched Operation Warp Speed in a rush to find and manufacture a vaccine for COVID-19. But are we flattening the curve? Some experts say that with the books closed on April, we haven't seen the expected results from the stay-at-home orders, at one point in place for 90% of the country. With new predictions of the virus lasting for some time, perhaps as long as two years, are we moving too fast too soon? We'll talk to the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. Daniel O'Day, the head of the drug company manufacturing Remdesivir, Gilead Sciences, will join us. Plus former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Then we'll look at the grim and growing financial fallout as the number of jobless Americans jumps to more than 30 million. We'll talk with the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Raphael Bostic, and the CEO of Southwest Airlines, Gary Kelly. Finally, with six months to go until Election Day, a look at campaign 2020. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Welcome to Face the Nation. As we turn the page to a new month, Americans continue to struggle emotionally, financially, and with just trying to plan ahead. In most cases, there are few clear answers to our many questions. We will continue to seek them for you. Our coverage begins today with CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman in Atlanta. In America's COVID siege, exasperation can morph into rage. Weekend protesters were furious. They argued our oxygen-starved economy needs a ventilator. Reopen for business. With 30 million jobs lost, millions of people are running low on something. Food, toilet paper, patience, and especially money. You'll probably notice more stores reopening this week. 38 states have already eased restrictions. Six more will follow suit tomorrow and Tuesday, all emphasizing social distancing. If we hear minimal reports of knucklehead behavior at our parks and we see the net, the metrics we need to meet, then we know that you all have taken to heart 
your responsibility. Another concern, food shortages. Across the country, widespread COVID infections have closed 22 meat and poultry processing plants. The virus has killed at least 20 workers, and at least 279 have been infected in Maryland. Any disruption or interruption to processing at our poultry processing plants could lead to significant national supply chain issues. Most health experts worry about a shortage of COVID testing. As April ended, the U.S. had conducted 6.2 million COVID tests. But a Harvard study concluded the country needs 5 million tests a day by early June to reopen safely. And Maryland and Colorado plan to hide their PPE from the federal government. A global free-for-all. We're just worried about them cutting them off at the manufacturer uh, during the supply chain or during customs. But there's no hiding a looming financial crisis for dozens of states. Record job losses have drained their unemployment trust funds. Massachusetts, New York, Ohio, and West Virginia all have enough to pay one more week's worth of benefits. Four other states have two weeks. And more than 40% of Americans live in states with less than six weeks. Several dozen malls around the country will reopen tomorrow. Here in Atlanta, Phipps Plaza behind me is one of them. Georgia has led the charge nationally to reopen. But on Friday, new COVID infections jumped again. The state reported 1,000 new cases in 24 hours. Margaret? Mark Strassman, thanks. China claims that the coronavirus outbreak began in an animal market in Wuhan. The U.S. intelligence community is investigating that theory and the possibility that it was accidentally released from a lab. Either way, U.S.-China relations are at a new low. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer reports on COVID-19 hotspots around the world. Margaret, China was the very first country to enforce radical isolation and widespread testing, an approach we now know to be the most effective way to control a COVID outbreak. And it's paid off. Almost 15 weeks since Wuhan went into lockdown. If not for the masks, life this May Day weekend looks pretty normal. Even retail shops are open. South Korea acted fast, too, and now says it has the outbreak under control. There is still social distancing here at an exam for job applicants. But with just a handful of new cases every day, Koreans are at last relaxing. At the other extreme, there's Brazil. These are fresh graves in Sao Paulo. The country is South America's COVID epicenter, with a rampant outbreak, limited testing, and a president who, when confronted with the numbers, said, so, what do you want me to do? In Europe, rules are easing, but at different speeds. Spaniards gratefully took to the streets after 48 days indoors, but only to exercise. Adults in the morning, kids in the afternoon. Austria has opened up more widely. Shops and, crucially, even hair salons are up and running. Poland is due to reopen its borders today, but care homes are still strictly locked down, though this one in Warsaw went the extra mile to arrange safe visits. Europeans can now see the light at the end of the COVID tunnel. Even in lockdown, they are finding ways to party. This is a drive-in disco in Germany. And here is the Finnish folk group Polo Karit celebrating International Dance Day in isolation. Here in the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's fiance had a new baby last week, but he's not taking any paternity leave. Instead, he's hard at work on a plan to gradually reopen things in Britain. Margaret? Elizabeth Palmer, thank you. We go now to Chicago, Illinois, and Governor J.B. Pritzker. Last week, he extended the state's stay-at-home order until the end of May. Good morning to you, Governor. Good morning. Why is the number of hospitalizations in your state still increasing? Well, it's increasing barely, it's true. Um, But we have really bent the curve significantly. We're not through this yet, there's no doubt. Um, And we've been looking to see those numbers flatten. We are seeing them flatten now. Uh, My great concern at this point is that we uh, make sure we've got our contact tracing up and running. Uh, We have increased testing significantly. So we are getting ready for a point where we can begin to reopen the economy. 
But there's some pressure on you. I mean, you had the mayor of Chicago say that residents aren't abiding by these calls to stay at home. You've had protests in Chicago, in southern Illinois as well. Is the politics of this complicating things for you? Not at all. I'm not thinking about the politics. I'm thinking about saving lives and keeping people healthy in our state. The fact is that there is uh, there are millions of people in the state of Illinois who have been following our stay-at-home rule, and they are the ones who have bent this curve for us. It is true there are outliers. The mayor and I have talked uh, uh, several times about the challenge of people uh, wanting to break the rules. But the truth is those are real outliers. And even the protesters, there were only a few hundred protesters. And although, you know, they sometimes carry reprehensible signs and, you know, are attacking what we're trying to do. We're still trying to keep them healthy, as we are the 12.7 million Illinoisans across the state. Uh, the presidential advisor, Jared Kushner, gave an interview this week. You heard a clip of it in the beginning of the show. Uh, and he said the country is on the medical aspect side of this improving and that the federal government rose to the challenge. Did the federal government rise to the challenge and meet your state's needs? Well, it's the governors that have risen to the challenge. You know, I talked to my fellow governors, Republicans and Democrats. We've shared ideas with one another about how to keep people safe. We've gotten some guidance from the CDC that's been helpful, but much of what came out of the White House for many weeks was not helpful. We needed the White House to lead on the Defense Production Act to help us get swabs, to help us get VTM, to help us get reagents. Uh, that really hasn't much happened, although recently we got a call from the White House telling Telling us that in May they're sending us 600,000 swabs, and I'm very grateful for that. We've, of course, overcome our challenges more recently and increased testing significantly. We're now among the top 10 states in, in America. We're number two for testing. We've got to get our contact tracing up and going, and then, as I say, we can reopen the economy as we see our hospitalizations begin to wane. So do you agree then with Kushner when he says the biggest uh, thing holding testing back is the state's ability to collect more samples? Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a week ago, the White House said that uh, we have all the capacity we need. Uh, well, they're right in the sense that there are plenty of machines that exist in the state of Illinois, but there weren't enough swabs, VTM, and reagent. There still aren't. But the White House is helping, and I appreciate that. Is it um, enough? But re it's not enough. It's not enough uh, today. But again, as a state, we're having to go out in the market and compete with every other state uh, to get swabs and VTM and reagents. Um, I wish that the White House had stepped up earlier, and I think they still have the opportunity to do so when it comes to reagent. But the fact is that we're going to overcome this. I believe by midsummer we'll be able to do tens of thousands more tests. And just again in May, we'll be able to do more than we're doing today, which is in the high teens. Governor, you know, I, I know that you have said and other governors have said that they will need more federal aid because of this crisis. But I want you to respond to, to this, uh, because before the crisis, Illinois had one of the worst pension problems in the country by your state's own admission. The pensions were underfunded by $129 billion in 2019. Citing numbers like this, uh, Republicans have characterized any emergency help now as essentially a bailout of, of poor management. I mean, the president slammed you this week in a presser as well. Is it reasonable for Congress if they put together the emergency aid you're asking for to attach strings that restrict how you spend it? Well, let's point out that, that all 50 states are suffering from a failure of revenues uh, to come in over the last couple of months. Coronavirus has caused that. Uh, all of us are having to spend more on social services and health care to take care of people. Uh, and as far as Illinois goes, we balanced the budget this year. Uh, we were on our way to a balanced budget for next year as well. So all we've asked for, and frankly the other 49 states too, as far as I know, is just help to replace those revenues that we all lost yeah. as a result of this invisible killer. So, so do you think you'll get the money and will there be strings attached? 
I don't know whether there'll be strings attached. I hope there aren't too many, because the fact is every state has a problem, and it's different in every state where they need to put the dollars. So putting more strings on it makes it much more difficult for us to move forward to get our economies going. Remember, Illinois has one of the most important economies in the world, not to mention in the nation. So the federal government's really the only entity that can step in and help us out. We'll be watching that. Governor, good luck to you. Thank you. We turn now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who joins us from Westport, Connecticut, this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, So these federal social distancing guidelines expired this week. It's a different story state to state over what's opening up. But you tweeted this week that you saw some worrisome signals, specifically when it comes to hospitalization rates. What is the direction of the epidemic? Well, when you look across the country, it's really a mixed bag. Uh, Certainly cases are falling in the tri-state region around New York City. But when you back out what's happening in New York, and New York's really driving a lot of the national statistics because it was such a large outbreak, um, around the nation, hospitalizations and new cases continue to rise. So there's about 20 states where we see a rising number of new cases. Illinois, Texas, Maryland, Indiana, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee have a lot of new cases on a daily basis. And so while mitigation didn't fail... I think it's fair to say that it didn't work as well as we expected. We expected that we would start seeing more significant declines in new cases and deaths around the nation at this point, and we're just not seeing that. This morning, Dr. Deborah Burks was on another network, and she said our projections were always that we would see between 100,000 and 240,000 Americans' lives lost due to the virus. On Monday of this week, the president said it's probably 60 to 7,000 70,000 dead the week before. He said 50 to 60,000. Are these White House numbers reliable at all? Well, the White House was looking at the IHME model out of Washington State, and that model initially showed at the high end 250,000 deaths and a base case of 100,000, but it's come down since then to about 70,000. It's starting to creep back up when you look at the updates of that model over the last two weeks. I think we have to look out to what's going to happen by the end of June. It's really hard to predict beyond June where this goes because we could have large outbreaks or it could become quiescent in the summer. But I think when you look out to the end of June, it's probably the case that we're going to get above 100,000 deaths nationally. I think the concerning thing here is that we're looking at the prospect that this may be a persistent spread, that while the doubling time has come down dramatically to about 25 days, the amount of days it takes for the epidemic to double in size is about 25 now from days or less than a week at the outset of this epidemic, we may be facing the prospect that 20,000, 30,000 new cases a day diagnosed becomes a new normal and 1,000 or more deaths becomes a new normal as well. Right now we're seeing for about 30 days now about 30,000 cases a day and 2,000 deaths a day. And if you factor in that we're probably diagnosing only one in 10 infections, Mm -hmm. those 30,000 cases are really 300,000 cases. Persistent spread is what you called it. So if we're going back to reopening business and life in America, what does that look like? You had airlines this week issue new guidelines. They're asking people to wear masks, giving them to them when they board. If someone has asthma, if someone has diabetes, something that makes them vulnerable, is it safe for them to get on a plane when there is persistent spread? Well, this may be the new normal. We need to know what that looks like. And it's going to be a case where people who have comorbidities have conditions that could lead to a bad outcome if they get infected are going to need to be very careful. That may be the future that we're looking at. Um, you know, the challenge is that if we see this slow simmer through the summer, maybe the summer's a backstop to spread. I think it will be. But we see this sort of persistent 20,000 cases a day, maybe 30,000, but it probably comes down a little. We see a persistent 1,000 or more deaths a day. Um, that's through the summer. But what happens when we come back in the fall and schools are back in session, colleges are back in session, residential college campuses? People are letting their guard down a little bit more. People are back at work after an August recess. And then you can see this slow simmer explode into a new epidemic or large outbreaks. That's the concern, that if we don't snuff this out more and you have this slow burn of infection, it can ignite at any time. You've been warning of looking ahead to the fall that that hasn't been addressed yet. You've also talked to us about this drug, remdesivir, that uh, the FDA gave emergency authorization for this week. Is that one of the tools in the toolbox that you say will exist in the fall that could make this better? 
That's right. I think the more that we see persistent infection, the more we're dependent upon a technological change to really be an inflection point in this epidemic. Remdesivir is an effective drug. It's going to help some patients, especially when used early in the course of disease, to reduce hospitalizations and reduce death. There's also the antibody drugs that we talked about that could be available by the fall. Um, And vaccines may be available by the fall in doses sufficient to ring fence infections in cities while we continue to study them to make sure they're safe and effective for mass inoculation. I think the more that the government accepts the fact that there's just going to be persistent spread and they want to open the economy against that backdrop, the more they better be doubling down on the technology and make sure that we're doing everything we can to get those drugs in time for the fall. You said there may be a vaccine by the fall. The the Trump administration has set January in this Operation Warp Speed as their goal for 300 million doses. Do you think it'll be ready before that? Well, I think what we're going to have in the fall is hopefully multiple manufacturers that have cleared early-stage safety trials and have millions of doses that could be deployed in large-scale studies inside cities. And so what you would do is deploy the vaccine in the setting of an outbreak in a city to both test whether it's safe and effective, so you're continuing to study it, but you're also using it potentially therapeutically to ring-fence an outbreak. I think we're going to be in a position to do that, and I know companies are working on protocols, designing trials to engage in that kind of deployment of vaccines. What we need right now is more than one manufacturer to be successful. We need multiple manufacturers, U.S.-based manufacturers, to have vaccines ready to deploy in time for the fall. You know, the country's two largest known coronavirus clusters are in prisons in Ohio. You hear about clusters in nursing homes, also in meat processing plants. There's a school of thought that says because these are highly concentrated that somehow they're more manageable. What do you make of that argument? Well, it's true um, to some extent. It might not be more manageable, but it's more vulnerable. I think we need to understand that. Disadvantaged communities and certain kind of institutional settings where people can't naturally social distance are hotspots. They're very vulnerable, and we need to be putting resources into those kinds of settings. And it's not just the shop floors and warehouses and workers who are vulnerable to infection because of the way they work. That's certainly part of the story. But it's also people who come from communities where they have to take mass transit, they can't naturally social distance, they don't have access to good health care to begin with and can't get access to testing. Those communities are very vulnerable, and the data now supports that. We're seeing pockets of intense spread in these kinds of settings, in these kinds of communities, and we should be pouring resources in to help those people. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks, as always, for your insight. Thanks a lot. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Joining us now is Daniel O'Day, chairman and CEO of Gilead Sciences. That's the pharmaceutical company that makes remdesivir. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Thank you for having me on. So this drug shaves about four days off the recovery time of someone hospitalized uh, with coronavirus, according to the government study. Um, Now that your company has this emergency use authorization, how quickly will the drug get to those people who need it? Well, uh, you know, I think I speak on behalf of all of us at Gilead that uh, we are uh, grateful and uh, uh, really humbled that everything has moved so quickly. You know, it's only been three months since the first case was diagnosed in the United States to the emergency use authorization that was provided this past Friday. That's thanks to a lot of patients and and caregivers that participated in our clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And we are now firmly focused on getting this medicine to the the most uh, urgent patients around uh, the country here in the United States. And Margaret, we intend to get that to patients uh, in the early part of this next week, uh, beginning to work with the government, which will determine which cities are most vulnerable and, and where the patients are that need this medicine. I think that's important. You're saying you've, you've donated some of this drug to the federal government and you will work with the federal government to decide where the drug goes or is that up to the federal government to decide? 
Right, Margaret. So we've donated the entire supply that we have within uh, our supply chain. And we did that because we acknowledge and recognize the human suffering, the human need here, and want to make sure that nothing gets in the way of this getting to patients. Uh, and what we will do is, is provide that donation to the U.S. government, uh, and they will determine, uh, based upon things like ICU beds, uh, the, where the course of the epidemic is in the United States, they will begin shipping tens of thousands of treatment courses out early this week and be adjusting that as the epidemic uh, shifts and evolves uh, in different parts and uh, different cities here in the United okay. States. Okay. Well, we have more to talk about with you, but I have to take a quick break here. So stay with us and stay with us, all of you as well, please. More with Daniel O'Day in a moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to pick up where we left off with Daniel O'Day, the head of Gilead Sciences, which produces the drug remdesivir, which was just given emergency use authorization. Uh, I want to pick up on this. You said the the supply of one and a half million doses of remdesivir has been donated to the government. That's enough for what, 150,000 patients or so? Right, Margaret. Just to be clear, what we've done is we've donated the entirety of our supply, which is around 1.5 million vials, uh, and that uh, turns into uh, around 100,000 to 200,000 treatment courses, depending on whether it's a five-day or a 10-day. And this donation will be made available to patients here in America and the United States and across the world as uh, other regulatory decisions are taken for those countries. This drug is clearly going to be in demand since it's the, the first sort of promising development we've had. Um, you were at the White House. Has the Trump administration talked to you at all about using the Defense Production Act to somehow mandate that you prioritize the U.S. market over foreign markets? Yeah, let me say something on the supply and the demand because, you know, uh, I'm so proud to work with the scientists of Gilead that uh, – you know, that quickly moved and mobilized themselves in January, long before we knew whether the medicine would be available, to increase the supply. This is a long supply process. It used to take around 12 months and now takes around six months. Uh, and because of the steps we took in January, we'll have significantly more supply in the second half of this year to serve the suffering and the human needs out there. We've been working very closely with the U.S. government, with other governments around the world. Uh, and in terms of the uh, allocation question, uh, I think we're aligned with the U.S. government to both serve the patients here in the United States uh, and then to be able to also make sure, as a global company based here in the United States, that we can serve other countries around the world as well. We've had very good dialogues with uh, the mm -hmm. government, and that's going well. So they haven't talked to you about mandating the U.S. market be prioritized or taking it for the stockpile, for example. You can still export it. That's correct. We have been exporting for clinical trials and for compassionate use, thousands of treatment courses, and our collaboration with the government has been such that we've been very transparent with them here in the United States, and we have a good relationship on, on future allocation. This drug you have to get through an IV right now, so it works for hospitalized patients. Will you develop other mechanisms? Does this ever become a pill someone can take at home? Yes, it's important to note that this medicine is really right now for the most severe patients in the hospital, and it's given by IV, either through a five-day treatment course or a 10-day treatment course, depending on the stage and nature of the patient. But our scientists have been working since uh, earlier this year to say, are there other ways that we could deliver this medicine, potentially, as Dr. Gottlieb mentioned, to earlier patients? Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, we're looking at formulations such as subcutaneous formulations that may be given outside the hospital setting and possibly an inhaled version. Um, this uh, medicine is not suitable for oral administration because of the way it's metabolized. But there are ways we can look at formulations, potentially, that would get us to earlier patients and patients outside the hospital setting. That research is still ongoing yet, hasn't yet read out, and we'll certainly keep you up to speed on that. All right. We will be watching. Thank you very much, Mr. Thank O'Day. You. 
Well, the Trump administration predicts a significant comeback for the economy by the end of the year. But last week, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell was blunt. Both the depth and the duration of the economic downturn are extraordinarily uncertain. Everyone is suffering here, but uh, I think those who are least able to, to bear it are the ones who, who are uh, you know, losing their jobs. Chairman Powell also urged the Trump administration and Congress to take more emergency action. And he announced a loan program for medium-sized companies to help keep them running. We turn now to the head of one of the 12 banks that make up the Federal Reserve System, Rafael Bostic. He is in Atlanta this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, we just heard that very bleak assessment in some ways, from the Federal Reserve Chair. Uh, in the past six weeks alone, 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment claims. Are we headed for a depression? Well, when I, when I think about this question, I think the first thing to be mindful of is that the Federal Reserve is acting boldly and decisively to try to provide support for markets all across this country. Look, we knew that coming out of this public health crisis or that their response was going to do damage to the economy. Uh, and that was required if we were going to get to the other side. And what we've tried to do is really uh, provide support to give people a bridge from that pre-virus situation to the post-virus situation. And let me just say, in terms of the numbers, uh, I think we knew that the jobless numbers were going to be bad for March. They're going to be tough again this Friday. But I think the real question, the thing I'm focusing on is how many of these, these jobs are going to, job losses are going to be permanent as opposed to those that are going to be temporary losses. And what is now, the answer the to that question? We, well, we're going to, we're, we are, a lot of the, the uh, responses that we've been doing have been aimed to try to provide support and relief. And what I would tell you is right now is too soon to tell. Mm -hmm. The, the pay, Paycheck Protection Program, that money is just getting into the system. The economic impact payments, those are just getting into the hands of families and households. And what we're going to do over the next week and several weeks is continue our outreach, call businesses, talk to people, and really try to find out whether the relief that's been offered has, is sufficient or mm -hmm. whether they need more, or, and, and also whether there are pockets that are missing. And if there are, we will talk to policymakers and make sure they're aware of it to see if there are other things that might be done. You know, the, the actions the Fed have taken are pretty unprecedented. Um, in terms of things that you are forecasting and warning about, I know you personally last month said that the month of May uh, could be make or break it for many businesses. It's not just about cash anymore. It's about staying solvent. Does that mean you're predicting a large number of bankruptcies in the weeks to come? No, it doesn't mean that at all. And let me just provide some context. We know that for many businesses and for many families, they don't have six or seven or eight months of savings. Instead, they may only have one or two months of savings, which means we're getting about to the time when those savings are going to be depleted. This is why so many of the actions that have been taken have been so important, getting relief into families. And so what we're trying to do right now is understand to what extent is that relief providing a service and keeping people away from those bankruptcies, because it is not in our interest for those bankruptcies to happen. That will mean that much more of this is permanent than temporary. And we're going to do all we can to make sure that doesn't happen. So you're president of the Atlanta Fed. That means you monitor closely what's happening in the American South. States like Florida and Georgia are reopening. What do, what do these initial days and weeks indicate to you? I mean, just because consumers can go out, does that mean they're actually going out and spending? Well, we've talked, we've talked to a lot of folks, uh, a lot of consumers and a lot of businesses. And what we're hearing is that many are actually being quite thoughtful in terms of how they're approaching this. You know, one of the things that is very important as you look through the South is that the virus is presenting itself differently in different populations. We know that African-Americans are being hit much harder by this. And so the response of how we reopen the economy has got to be thoughtful. What I've been encouraged by is that many businesses that have the option are choosing not to do that. We have talked to a number of leaders of, of important and small businesses to say, we're going to keep doing our, our restaurant, our curbside delivery. We're going to keep doing our social distancing to try to make sure that as we open up, we don't do it in a way that adversely impacts uh, the population and leads to another 
uh, spike in terms of infections. The Fed chair was clear that he is watching closely what's happening in the mortgage market. So many Americans have had to put off their monthly payments. What level of risk is there? You know the housing market. What level of risk is there that we are facing a banking or financial crisis in the months ahead? Well, I, I was uh, in, in the government through the last crisis when it was a housing crisis. And fortunately, this is not that right now. What I would say is this, is that there have been some But could it be in, in the months ahead? Is that what this warning that you're watching closely, the mortgage servicers, is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is that we're going to do what it takes to make sure that doesn't happen, that we, we know where there are press stress points, we know where there are tensions, and if we see those tensions start to get to a higher level, we're going to act, and we're going to encourage policymakers across the spectrum to do that. One other thing I would say is that the banking se sector coming into this crisis is much stronger than it was in 2007 and 2008. There's much more capital. Yeah. We've taken a lot of steps to make sure that, that banks do have resources available so that they are not in that insolvency space. And I'm hopeful that they're going to be able to be part of the solution in terms of extending capital, uh, mod modifying the mortgages mm -hmm. and loans and financial relationships they have with businesses and households in ways that reduces the tension and allows families to be able to forbear for even longer than they can right now. So one of the things that the Fed did this week was uh, say that it'll essentially buy more debt of, of local governments um, to help them out. As we've been hearing from governors and, and local leaders, they're under a lot of financial stress right now. Um, but the Fed chair also said that's basically not the Fed's job is to lend money, not to spend money. He, he pointed right at Congress and said it's up to you to do something at this point. What is it that the states need in terms of relief from your point of view, from what you are seeing? Well, first, I would just say the, as a Federal Reserve, we stand ready to act as much as we can within the limits of the law. And the chair was exactly right. We, are, we have limits as to what we can do and how much support we can offer. I think it's an open question as to how much more is going to be needed. And we're going to continue as we engage with governments and helping them with their financing to understand the depth of that need and then yeah. communicate that to policymakers so they can decide how much extra support might be necessary. But, you know, for us, we are very much in a situation mm -hmm. where we're going to do what we can, what we're legally allowed to do as much as we can. Right. And then take information and get that to policymakers so okay. they can decide it next step. All right. Thank you very much. We'll be right back with Gary Kelly, the head of Southwest Airlines. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The airlines are just one of the many industries hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic, with the number of air travelers plummeting 96 percent. Half the U.S. fleet of planes is grounded, and the planes that are taking off are nearly empty, averaging just 17 passengers per domestic flight. Congress has given the industry $50 billion in financing, either as loans or grants. Despite that assistance, the four biggest carriers reported massive first-quarter losses last week. One of those airlines is Southwest Air. Gary Kelly is the company's chairman and CEO, and he joins us from Dallas this morning. Good morning to you. Hi, Margaret. Is it safe to fly again? It is. Um, you know, we're... We're, we're doing everything possible to encourage people uh, to uh, come back and fly. We're cleaning airplanes. We're requiring masks of our employees and our customers. Uh, we're using uh, very deep cleanings every night. We're using electrostatic uh, misters, uh, which will kill the virus on surfaces for up to 30 days. Uh, we're exercising social distancing. Uh, and on board the aircraft, uh, we, we won't be booking airplanes full so that people can spread out. So uh, absolutely, we're doing everything we can to make it as safe as humanly possible. Uh, and you stop things like food service and the like. Um, I mean, those sound like good measures, 
But, you know, we had a guest on our program last week, Barry Diller, who is a, is a big investor, and he said it's just absurd if you do things like remove the middle seat to have some spacing. I mean, to his point, you still have a confined space. You still have a shared bathroom. You still have people who are walking down the aisle, going to their seat, walking past you. How, I mean, how much risk is there? What do you think the measures you're taking do to offset everything else? I don't think the risk on, on an airplane is, is any greater risk than anywhere else. And in fact, uh, you just look at the layered approach that we use. Uh, it's, it's as safe as an environment as you're going to find. We're using hospital quality disinfectants, uh, HEPA air filters uh, to make sure that the air is, is properly filtered and clean. Uh, we're not go- going to remove middle seats or prohibit people from sitting in middle seats, but at the same time, we won't book the airplanes full. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you choose, all the middle seats can be open. So I know you said at one point that th- what you're going through now was worse than after 9-11, which is I- extraordinary. Um, but, I mean, is the bottom line here that cheap travel is over for Americans for the future, that the business is just completely changing and that the future is uncertain? Well, sure, uh, the future is uncertain, but, um, you know, right now we're, we're at a low point. And so I, I just don't think it's right to extrapolate today uh, in, into perpetuity. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll get through this. But um, in the meantime, I think it's actually the, the opposite. After 9-11, uh, Herb Kelleher was famous for saying that we're all low-fare carriers now. Uh, because that's what it's going to take uh, to get people flying. And that is certainly the case today. Uh, And I think we're very well prepared for that. We've got a strong balance sheet. We've got a lot of cash. We've got a great business model and a low-cost structure. But uh, we're going to have to fight our way through this. And uh, obviously, I'm anxious to see uh, how the uh, travel uh, demand uh, develops here in the summer. It's picking up? Well, I th- yeah, I think we've seen uh, the bottom here uh, in, in April. Each week after the first week of April has gotten successively better. Uh, I think May will be better than April was, and I, I don't think uh, June will be a good month, but hopefully it will be a bit better than May. Uh, and then we're looking forward to July and August, and we'll just have to see. There are mm-hmm. bookings in place, but those could easily be canceled. So it's, it's really one day at a time. Southwest has taken um, about $3.2 billion in federal aid. Do you expect to take more? You know, uh, I mean, the first thing is to um, really thank uh, Congress, the administration, Secretary Mnuchin, Secretary Chow, because what was needed for our country was a lot of liquidity. Uh, And the CARES Act was exactly what we needed to avoid uh, a really serious depression. Um, we've applied for another government loan. I don't know that we'll take it. Uh, I think what the government has done for us with this CARES Act is it really has opened up the capital markets. Uh, mm-hmm. A month ago, we couldn't have borrowed money, we couldn't have raised equity, and we were able to raise $6 billion last week. So uh, I think that we've got what we need to see our way through, but uh, if we have to seek uh, another government loan, we will do that. We have until September uh, to make that decision. Um, and we know because of the first round you took that you can't lay off anyone um, until after September 30th. That was part of the, the CARES Act provision. Um, I know, though, you recently told employees that if uh, business doesn't pick up by July, that you'll become a dramatically smaller airline. What does that mean? Are you laying the groundwork for job cuts? Well, you know, I think you summarized it well uh, with your with your comments. Uh, the the planes are virtually empty, and we've got uh, at Southwest alone, we've got close to 400 airplanes that are parked. Uh, the, the the demand is just not there. So obviously, if things don't improve, we have to downsize. We've never had a furlough in our history. We've never had a pay cut in our history, and I'm extraordinarily proud of that. Uh, and we certainly don't want to break that record. What I have promised our people is I don't know what the future holds, uh, but I do know that we're very well prepared. Mm-hmm. And the very last thing that we'll do yeah. is have an involuntary furlough. So we'll just okay. have to see how things play out and do our best uh, to uh, avoid those, those, uh, those kinds of uh, results. Thank you very much for your time. We'll be back in a moment. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? 
Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's six months until Election Day and there is news from the campaign trail. Presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden publicly denied a former aide's accusation that he sexually assaulted her in 1993. Our CBS News political correspondent Ed O'Keefe reports. In every case, the truth is what matters. In this case, the truth is these claims are false. Joe Biden on Saturday once again denied accusations of sexual assault. His accuser, Tara Reid, worked for him for nine months ending in 1993. Last year, she was among several women who recounted what they called inappropriate touching by Biden. She began detailing more serious allegations for the first time in March. I remember his hands underneath my blouse and underneath my skirt and his fingers penetrating me as he was kiss, trying to kiss me and I was pulling away. What are you going to win today? Reid supported Bernie Sanders during the Democratic primary and began speaking out again as Biden was on the verge of securing the nomination. CBS News has spoken multiple times with Reid and we have requested an on-camera interview. She is the only individual who has accused Biden of sexual assault. Some of her acquaintances, former colleagues, and her brother tell CBS News they recall her mentioning the alleged Biden episode in the 1990s. But details of her brother's account have differed in interviews with other news outlets. Several former Biden Senate aides have said that they never heard about Reid's allegations while working for him. And attorney Bill Jeffress, who led the vetting of Biden for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, tells CBS News that his investigation never turned up allegations of sexual misconduct. And Ed O'Keefe joins us. Ed, it's good to see you and to talk about politics again. Uh, this story, I mean, it, it opens up a lot of questions, um, but and, and it's important to investigate these kind of allegations politically. If President Trump faces accusations from more than 20 individuals about sexual harassment and abuse. Does it hurt Biden if it didn't hurt Trump? I mean, is there a political cost? We'll see. A lot of this is going to boil down to whether or not there are any records of a, a complaint that Reid says she made to a Senate personnel office back in the 1990s about general harassment concerns with Biden. He's called for their release. But Republicans, especially this morning, are making a hypocrisy argument that if it was a big deal for Donald Trump, it was if it was a big deal for Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation, shouldn't it also be a big deal for Joe Biden's presidential prospects? You're right. Trump won the White House. Kavanaugh got confirmed. We'll see, ultimately, whether or not it matters for Biden and his fortunes. All right. Well, I want to ask you about some of our uh, CBS News polling, because we have new data out today. And this new national poll uh, shows that in the head-to-head matchup, Biden is ahead of President Trump by six points, 49 percent versus 43 percent. And since the Biden campaign started officially vetting vice presidential possibilities last week, he's pledged to name a female running mate. So... We then asked who Democratic voters would like to see on the ticket alongside him. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is the top choice among Democrats polled at 36 percent, followed by California Senator Kamala Harris at 19 percent, former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams at 14 percent. Senator Amy Klobuchar comes in at 13 percent. Um, so that's interesting. But when it comes to the guy at the top of the ticket, Biden himself, um, what does this indicate? Why is Trump behind? Well, he's always been either pretty much tied or very close with Biden in head-to-head matchups, and he is now nationally, as well as in a lot of these battleground states. Part of the issue here is the economy. He wanted to run on a strong economy. He can't do that anymore. And if the economy continues to crater, it's going to be really difficult for him to continue making that argument. Well, and it's difficult to campaign, period, these days. Uh, President Trump tweeted this morning, hopefully our country will soon mend. We're missing our wonderful rallies. Is the country missing political rallies, Ed? 
Well, look, uh, the president may be itching to get back out there, but a new poll out this morning, our new poll, finds that voters say they're seeing the president too much, just 11 percent saying they're seeing the president enough. And while Biden has been holed up in his Delaware basement doing TV interviews and holding virtual rallies, voters say they'd actually like to see more of him. Forty-seven percent say they'd like to see him more often. Perhaps the good news for both of these men, they like to campaign, they're strong retail politicians, and overwhelming 84 percent of voters in our poll say that just because they're out there, they're not out there doing rallies, won't affect their final decision. In other words, voters telling the candidates, it's okay, stay home. And there is nothing typical about this race this year at this moment. Not at all. Ed, I know you'll be watching it closely for us. Thank you. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Gilead Sciences Chairman and CEO Daniel O'Day, President and CEO of the Atlanta Fed, Raphael Bostic, and Southwest Airlines Chairman and CEO Gary Kelly. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.